Do you ever get just really invested in like a movie or a TV show? I mean, it happens to me all the time. The most recent one at the time of me recording this is Making a Murderer. Fascinating. It's a fascinating Netflix docu-series following the, uh, it's a still active case of the murder of Teresa Halbach in uh, Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. So the state found Stephen Avery and his nephew Brendan Dassey guilty of murder. But as many people have pointed out, especially their separate lawyers, uh, the evidence is quite contrary uh, to the verdict that the state gave. So Stephen Avery's courtroom battle is all about like the use and misuse of forensic evidence, uh, using science and careful analysis to put together timelines, and this battle of wits uh, between these genius lawyers and these best-in-class forensic investigators. But his nephew, Brendan Dassey, the case is a little bit different. His nephew, Brendan, has essentially zero forensic ties to the case. However, he confessed to the police that he committed the crime along with his uncle, but he now claims, with a lot of ground, that the confession was coerced by interrogators, taking advantage of his 16-year-old brain uh, with a standard deviation low IQ, it's like an 87, we call that about a standard deviation low. Since then, he's been the object of a vicious battle of civil rights. The whole show is better than fiction. I mean, the story just unfolds in such crazy ways, and the filmmakers document the epic four-way duel between two incredible law firms and the Wisconsin criminal justice system and the federal appellate courts. It's a masterful battle of wills and genius intellect with incredibly high stakes. And the two people at the center of it all are the ones with the least power, existing merely as victims of the outcomes of this epic brawl as others debate their identity and fate. And if you think that's epic, wait until you read the book of John. In the last episode, we discussed the way that Jesus talks about himself, but at the heart of the book, John includes the reactions, questions, and debates of the people who watch and listen to Jesus. And believe me, it gets dramatic fast. There are statewide debates, closed-door meetings, attempts at public execution, betrayals, cloak-and-dagger plots, a corrupt local government, a larger government too political to care, there's chaos in the streets, talks of revolt, courtroom deceptions, there's trust and distrust, there's loud voices, silence, and ultimately there's a rejection of truth and justice. And why does this all happen? It's all about how the tiny nation of Israel was torn apart over the question that we're still debating today. Who is Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the finale of our John series on Redeeming the Time. Here's a quick review of the nine episodes we've had so far. That's crazy. I think it's nine. That's a lot of episodes. That's more episodes spent in John than anything else combined on this show. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so anyways, review of our uh, progress through the Gospel of John so far. We've seen these different themes. The way we've looked at it hasn't been chronological in order. We're, we're looking at different uh, themes and tropes and motifs that John keeps using in his Gospel. The first one is that John has painted Jesus as a new Moses in like various different ways. Uh, he's compared the new covenant against the law, the old covenant, and he's paralleled the uh, the signs and wonders that Jesus does uh, with the plagues in Egypt, and he's compared Jesus to the patriarchs as well. Uh, John has given his opinion on Jesus' divine origins and his role in the divine being. He does that especially in John chapter 1. Number three, John has presented us with a critical analysis of truth, and he draws a distinction between those who are seeking real truth 
and those who hide from its power. Fourth, John has given us a courtroom motif as characters in the actions of Jesus stand together as witnesses to Jesus' divine identity. We're going to spend a little more time on that today. John has also used the narrative to explore Jesus' oneness with the Father, the familiar figure of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He sees uh, the Yahweh figure of the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about and Jesus himself as being all part of the divine identity. And that's the theme. We can pick that up on uh, the amount of times that uh, oneness is mentioned in John's gospel. John's explored other stuff too. He's explored the idea of light and uh, there's all sorts of metaphorical language that goes along with that. Ultimately, he presents Jesus as the life-giving source of wisdom on earth. Lastly, John has carefully organized Jesus' teachings and speeches to highlight seven cases of divine uh, of Jesus invoking divine authority with the phrase I am. Remember that's ego eimi in Greek. That's what we talked about last episode, as well as seven cases of Jesus talking about his own purposes, not just his divine identity, but his divine purpose here on earth with the seven statements of I am and so on and so forth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. He has seven of those statements coupled with the seven uh, egoimi statements. All of them are incredibly important, and that's how Jesus talks about himself, invoking divine authority and explaining divine purpose. Altogether, these are all different themes that John has used. He has used these themes to explore the question of who Jesus is. If you remember way back when we started this, we started with a question, who is this guy? Now, where that question really gets highlighted in John's gospel, we're tackling it here in the finale. This is the last theme in the book of John that we're going to touch on, mostly because it's the last one I've found, and it's quite possibly the most important one uh, that I've found. So we've spent a lot of time seeing what John thinks of Jesus. Uh, We've seen how Jesus' story plays out. Uh, We know what Jesus thinks about Jesus. But we haven't spent a lot of time on the single most glaring theme in the entire book. What did the people around Jesus think about Jesus? We're going to take a look at that on today's episode. And spoilers, just for this next section here, uh, there's a spreadsheet I'm about to get set up. So, uh, you know this is going to be good. (laughs) Oh, spreadsheets. That's always the start of something amazing, isn't it? So I decided that when I started doing this study that I was going to need to be able to organize information uh, relatively easily. And so um, I decided to make this spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet is going to have a reference as well as a character and their statement. So it's just a three-column spreadsheet. And I ended up with way more entries than I thought I was going to have. Uh, So I'm glad that I made this spreadsheet because this is going to make getting to information quickly. 
Uh, so obviously, I'm not going to have a lot of time to highlight every single instance of this theme, which is people discussing and uh, identifying and labeling the character of Jesus. Um, but I am just going to read each one to you, like, super quick here. And you're going to understand pretty quickly uh, how this jumps off the page. Like, if you were to look in John, you'd start to notice that people are saying things like this all the time. So I think this is exhaustive. Um, I combed over the book more than a few times. But anyways, here's the list that I have uh, collected of the instances of people labeling and identifying Jesus and his character. All right, here we go. Before Jesus is even on the scene, in uh, chapter 1, verse 29, and then again in verse 36, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. So we haven't even seen Jesus do anything yet. As the readers, we've seen what John, uh, the author, has written about um has written about Jesus. We've read that introductory section in John 1, and that's, you know, the word and the light of the world and all that stuff is right there. But in the narrative part, which begins in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, we haven't seen Jesus really do anything, uh, but we know that John is pretty excited about him. And before Jesus is on the scene, John the Baptist twice calls him the Lamb of God. And then in verse 134, he calls him the Son of God. So, uh, right off the gate, people are labeling who Jesus is. There's expectations, discoveries, identification. After John the Baptist makes those statements, two disciples, one of them is Andrew, um, and the other one is, we think, the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved uh, that we talked about a few episodes ago. These two guys hear John the Baptist talking about him as the Lamb of God, and they say, well, we got to hook up with this guy. And they so they seem to be disciples of John, and they leave him and they go up to Jesus and they call him in uh, chapter one, verse 38, rabbi, which means teacher. Then Andrew, who we knew was one of them in chapter one, verse 41, calls him the Messiah uh, when he goes to talk to his brother about it. Philip calls him in chapter one, verse 45, him whom Moses and the prophets wrote about, uh, which is a really cool title. And then we just keep going. Uh, Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 49 says, Rabbi, son of God, king of Israel, all back to back. It's pretty sweet. Nothing in chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, we get the account of Nicodemus. And the discussion with Nicodemus is what turns up like the most famous verse in the Bible, which is uh, John 3.16. That is contained in this conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus starts that conversation by calling him Rabbi, teacher from God. Then we go through all of that account. We get to the woman at the well. The woman at the well, at first, after Jesus reveals some information about her, uh, she decides, oh my gosh, you're a prophet. And then a little bit after that, she realizes, uh, so that first account is uh, chapter 4 and 19. Ten verses later, she has now had a very eye-opening experience, has booked it back to her village, and tells everyone, a man who told me all things, could it be the Christ? Uh, so that's a pretty cool title, too. She's identified him as Christ, and she's also tied it in with uh, she's uh, a statement that uh, she made earlier, is she knows that the Christ will call him, uh, come and tell all things, and so there's that. She goes, she tells the village people that, the village people come back, hang out with Jesus for a little while, and they tell Jesus, you know, she told us that you might be the Christ, you're a man who can tell me all, or can tell us all things, uh, but now we've seen you with our own eyes, and in chapter uh, 4, verse 42, they say, we know that you are Christ, the Savior of the world. And these are Samaritan people, I mean, I just, I love this book. 
We skip a little bit. We get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 14, witnesses, um, presumably either 5,000 of them or uh, at least people who were there uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, probably a, a small group of them. So these witnesses, they follow Jesus and they call him a prophet in chapter 6, verse 14. The same people, given about 30 verses later in 6, verse 42, they then call him Jesus, son of Joseph, when, when they're emphasizing that as uh, his humanity, because they've now said, uh, Jesus has now said something that they disagree with. And so they emphasize his humanity now. Two minutes ago, he was a prophet. Now, I don't know, he's Jesus, son of Joseph. We know where he came from. He's nothing special. That debate kind of goes south, and a lot of the Jews, uh, I think, walk away from him after that. Uh, but Jesus has a meeting with his disciples afterwards, and Peter identifies him in uh, chapter 6, verse 69, as Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a cool title. So you can see, some of these people are kind of getting it right, some people are getting it close, and some people are getting it wrong. Uh, the witnesses to the 5,000 seem to be the first people to really get it wrong when they get upset with him and call him Jesus, son of Joseph. They emphasize his humanity. But then Peter gets it right and calls him Christ, son of the living God. Skip over to chapter 7, verse 26. This is during uh, the Festival of Tents forget the name in Hebrew, but during this uh, festival, I have it in my notes. I don't remember the story well. I'm looking at my notes and I called them tent people. Uh, <laughs> tent people. All right. Well, these tent people in chapter seven, verse 26, question a little bit. Could he truly be the Christ? Okay. Uh, later on, the crowd uh, is going to call him the prophet and others are going to call him Christ. So there's a little bit of a, a division there. Later on, in chapter 9, verse 17, the blind man identifies Jesus as a prophet. Later on, in 9.38, he's going to call him Lord, which is pretty cool. And the blind man has a progression, and that story is really key. We'll get into that later. Uh, but that story is really key as far as people identifying Jesus. Now, let's just hit the pause button right here. Because I've just gone through an entire page of my notes. I'm not going to have to lean over and scroll down. Holy moly, we're not even done yet. We're like halfway through the book of John. Uh, we're through most of our references, but still, this is a huge list. So you can see how it starts to jump out after a while. People keep doing this. Why does John keep highlighting different people discovering and identifying and misidentifying who Jesus is? There has to be a reason. We're going to break that down, but we need to make it through this list. In chapter 11, in verse 27, this is during the whole ordeal with Lazarus, before Lazarus has been raised uh, from the dead, Jesus has come into town, and Mary and Martha are having a bad time, and Martha has this discussion with Jesus, and he's trying to get her to trust him, and she does identify him as Christ the Son of God. Uh, what's interesting about that story is that she doesn't uh, kind of awaken to what's about to happen. She believes that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, but not enough to believe that he has power over dead right then and that he'll do something to bring Lazarus back from the dead now, not just raise him at the end of days. Then we go a while, and we go a while because Jesus has this thing called the farewell discourse that takes up a few chapters. This is after the Last Supper. He talks to his disciples. In the middle of that, we do get a few 
uh, quips in from his disciples. But most of it, if you've got like a red letter Bible, uh, it's red letters everywhere uh, with a few interjections by the disciples. One of those interjections is in chapter 16, verse 30. The disciples identify him as being from God. Then we go all the way to after the Last Supper. There is in uh, in chapter 18, verses 5 and 7, this crowd, soldiers and the mob that comes to arrest Jesus uh, following Judas, uh, they call him repeatedly Jesus of Nazareth. And what's interesting is they come up, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, egoi me. Boom, earthquake, everybody goes down, stands up, brushes the dust off, says, where were we? Jesus says, you were looking for somebody. And they're like, oh yeah, we were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. So they have to say it twice because Jesus' identity is a, a little bit stronger than they're using here. They're not calling him the Christ. They're not calling him the king or anything else. They're just calling him Jesus of Nazareth. And Nazareth is not a pleasant place. So they're kind of using a derogatory term, while Jesus has a much stronger uh, term, aka the divine name in Greek, egoimi, and uh, he has a lot more power, I think, he has a little more credibility than uh, those people, based on the fact that him just saying those words caused an earthquake. But he allows them to take him into custody, and he ends up in Pilate's court. So later on in that chapter, uh, in 1833, Pilate is going to ask him, are you king of the Jews? And that's really interesting because nobody's called Jesus king of the Jews. Uh, there has been some, uh, a few moments where that's come into play, but no one's outright said it. Uh, Jesus books it at one point because he thinks they're about to take him by force and crown him. Uh, it's kind of implied during the triumphal entry that uh, the zealots really want to make him king to get the Romans out. But Someone clearly has told Pilate in between the lines here uh, that Jesus is or claims to be king of the Jews. So when Pilate interacts with Jesus, the first thing he asks him is king of the Jews. Are you king of the Jews? And that's going to become a theme in the way Pilate uh, keeps bringing this up. He'll bring it up again just a few verses later in 1838, uh, sorry, 1839. He'll bring up king of the Jews again. And then the soldiers will adopt that term and use that on Jesus in 1903. They'll call him King of the Jews, uh, and they use that to mock him. I think this is while they're beating him. Uh, Pilate says, not just in Jesus, but out to the Jews in chapter 19, verse 14. He says, you're, you're king. Should I give you your king? Uh, and there's debate as to whether he's being derogatory or not. And then Pilate makes a sign after the Jews decide that or convince Pilate to kill Jesus. Pilate has a sign made that says in, I think, I think it's Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, maybe Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, uh, says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right there on the cross as he's being crucified. So right to the end, Pilate is kind of obsessed with that term, King of the Jews. And again, there's debate as to what he really means by that. Then we're getting to the end here. Finally, this is a long list, huh? Mary, in chapter 20, verse 16, this is after the resurrection, when she recognizes that she's not talking to a gardener, she's talking to Jesus, resurrected Jesus, she calls him Rabboni, or teacher. And then finally, the climactic identification, Thomas, in chapter 20, verse 28, realizes and truly believes that Jesus has risen from the dead and calls him my Lord and my God. And that is the list. Holy moly, that is 27 entries. 
27 instances of Jesus being given these titles by other people. And this isn't counting a bunch of other instances that we're going to look at later. They play into the theme, but they play in a little bit differently. These are just moments when people say, aha, he is this, or you are that. Uh, so that's pretty crazy. Uh, that's a lot. And this isn't counting Jesus' titles for himself, which there's 14. There's the seven instances of him saying, egoi me, and the seven I am statements as well. This isn't counting John's identification of Jesus in like the introduction, because that's not part of the narrative. But a similar motif being repeated in a single gospel narrative 27 times, that should easily be a cue to pay attention to what's going on here. John is using a theme. So just think about that for a minute. That is big. That's a cue to pay attention. But on their own, uh, all these identifications and labels uh, and decisions about Jesus' character aren't the only part of this theme. And on their own, they don't give us a theme, actually. There's more to it. There's no meaning to it with just the people uh, assigning it. We need to do a little bit more digging. That's what we're going to do next. So in addition to all these titles, there are debates, and the debates are amazing. So we're going to go through those uh, as well. So the first debate is in chapter 6, verse 52. So the Jews get upset and argue about Jesus' statement about giving them his flesh. And that statement right there is what turns them. We had them in our list. This is the witnesses to the feeding of the 5,000. That statement by Jesus about giving them his flesh and being the bread of life, that statement is what turned them from calling him a prophet to calling him Jesus, son of Joseph. So this first debate is pretty small. Most of these, the debate portion is only in a verse or two where it says uh, there's a division. Uh, so in chapter 7, verse 12, I believe this is at the, ban yeah, this is the banquet for the Feast of Tents or uh, the Festival of Tents Tabernacles. The Jews here are arguing about Jesus quietly. So Jesus says he's not going to go, uh, but then he kind of sneaks in and he pays attention to people. Uh, and the Jews are arguing quietly so that the Pharisees don't hear him or hear them, trying to determine uh, if Jesus is good or bad. So something is good and something that he's deceiving the people. But everyone has to keep quiet because the Pharisees are like absolutely pissed about Jesus and they don't want to hear people talking about it. So they don't want to get in trouble with the Pharisees. So they have to keep it quiet. But they're all kind of discussing this. It's the talk of the town. It's coronavirus. Right now, right now, the coronavirus is the big deal. That's the talk of the town. Uh, but everybody is, you know, talking about it loudly. But this is, you know, secret. Hush, hush. Let's debate this a little bit. So Jesus is in there and he listens to some of these conversations and then he's like, eh, I'm out. So he books it and he goes to the temple and he goes and starts teaching there. And the people there debate whether he is the Messiah. And here they're debating between conflicting information and knowing the whole story, as I imagine you would if you're around, you know, during Christmas time, 
uh, they argue about how the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, but they think Jesus comes from Galilee, because, I mean, that's where he's from. Now, the answer is he comes from both. He was born in Bethlehem uh, because of the census and all that. But they argue this point. They're trying to figure out, can he be the Messiah or can he not be? Because Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem and we're pretty sure Jesus comes from Galilee. Kind of talks like a Galilean. Where does he come from? Not long after that, just like seven verses later in chapter seven, verse 50, uh, the Pharisees are debating uh, who Jesus is. And Nicodemus doesn't think they're being fair. So Nicodemus, who visited him in chapter 3 to have an intelligent talk with him secretly, is kind of trying to bend them to be a little bit more lenient on Jesus. He's being painted a little bit. We're going to see him again later. John is kind of painting him as a Jesus sympathizer, but he's not bold enough to, uh, to make the tough calls. But he tries to kind of bend the Pharisees to be more lenient on Jesus and give him a due process rather than just assuming that he's evil. But the Pharisees won't hear anything about it. He suggests to them, he's like, does our law just assume that a man is guilty before we've heard what he's saying? And they basically say they don't care and tell him to shut up. So that's the end of that. Nice try, Nicodemus. In chapter 9, verse 16, this is after Jesus has healed the blind man, the Pharisees debate who Jesus is. And they're trying to reconcile how he can violate the Sabbath, because he did when he healed the the blind man. He did that on the Sabbath, which he didn't consider a violation. They considered it a violation. They can't seem to reconcile how he can sin so horribly and violate the Sabbath, but also be able to perform a healing miracle. So they're arguing that in chapter 9, 16. In chapter 10, in verse 19, after Jesus gives his little speech on being the good shepherd, uh, and the sheep gate and all that. It's two I am statements right there. The Jews that are there have a debate about it. Some of them think that he's demon possessed and others say that he has to come from God in order to say the things that he says and do crazy things like healing blind men. So they're debating whether or not he's, de- he's either on one end of the spectrum, demon possessed. On the other end of the spectrum, he's from God, one or the other. Now, the next one is, it's got to be my favorite for a few reasons. Uh, So this is in chapter 12, verse 29. This one is just, it's great. So for this dispute, Jesus is talking. And then for a moment, he just talks right to the father. And the father answers. God just boom from heaven. He just talks out of the sky. And get this, all right? John includes a tiny detail that doesn't really amount to much. But he includes that there's a division between the people who heard the voice of God and the people who claim that it was just thunder. All right, now this cracks me up. Because this sounds like Twitter. It's amazing. We have what seems to us, as the readers here, to be undisputable objective fact. Was that a human voice speaking out of the sky, or was that thunder? You'd think it would be pretty clear, right? But no, these people managed to fight over this. So at first, that kind of just made me laugh, but then I started to dig into this a little bit more, and it seems to me like there are two possibilities here. So the quicker and easier to assume, but kind of more shallow idea is that uh, this is merely just showing how easily divided these people are. Uh, The fact that they're arguing over what should be objective fact uh, kind of hints at the fact that there's maybe something wrong going on here. And this fits right in with John frequently in all these divisions says something and the people were divided, you know, something like that. Uh, So that word keeps coming up. I don't know what it is in Greek, but it's pretty clear. And in English, John keeps saying, and the people were divided or the Pharisees were divided and there was a division among them and yada, yada, yada. So you'd think that God speaking from heaven would be 
indisputable fact. Yes, we all heard that that was a voice, but these people managed to somehow argue about it. Now, there's a second idea, which goes a little bit deeper, but it might make some assumptions that are a little too far, so I'm not really sure which one to land on. But this one, this idea is that the text is providing some clarity about how in these debates, we should be able to see one group who understands what's going on and one group who really doesn't. Now, that is really true about all these divisions. There's one group who's got it going on and one group who's just completely out of the loop. And right here, by showing that this isn't just like a subjective debate, this objectively happened. It's showing that one group is completely blinded and one group understands that Jesus is legit. In all of these debates, it forms like a like a pattern or a stencil or something that we can uh, trace in every single one of these debates. And that seems like maybe it's a little bit of a stretch to say that this is like a format for all the other ones, but it does fit right after this story. Uh, John is going to quote from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, and both of those passages are about the people being blinded uh, and not being able to hear. And so, John interrupts the narrative to quote from those, and with those quotes, he ends the book of signs. So to me, it's not all that crazy to say that this story is being used uh, as a pattern to retroactively give us some clarity into the other debates, how really there's one group who understands and one group who doesn't, because if we're dealing with something objective, was that a voice or was that thunder? It was obviously a voice. You know, you can't, how can there possibly be a debate over this? But there is. So, both of these are possibilities, that uh, it's just showing how easily they're divided, or uh, if it's using uh, something to show us, uh, give us some insight into the, other, into the other instances of division in the book of John. Then we get to our last division. So, the book of signs ends, this is, you know, Jesus' ministry. We go into the farewell discourse, which is mostly talking, that's why it's called discourse, and then after that, we get more narrative. And this narrative documents how Jesus is arrested, goes into the courts, crucified, rises again, and then talks to the disciples afterwards. The last division in the book of John, it occurs in Pilate's court. And this isn't like a quick verse. Uh, it happens, I have it written down from 1828 to 1916, is all about Pilate's court and the debates that are going on there. And this is interesting because... Pilate becomes really focused on the title King of the Jews, which we've already talked about, and he and his soldiers will use it several times in the narrative. Now, John depicts Pilate as having this strange curiosity when it comes to Jesus. He states repeatedly that he doesn't find any fault in Jesus, but he ultimately makes the unjust but political decision to roll with what the Jews are asking him to do and kills Jesus. So there's some question here. Why does Pilate obsess over the term King of the Jews? I did some online research, and people are a little bit divided over this, but I did find what I think are some weak arguments, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. So the first thing that we're going to focus on, as far as why is Pilate obsessed with this phrase King of the Jews that we really haven't seen anywhere until now? So the first idea is that he might have just been keeping the zealots in mind. The zealots were a group of Jews in Israel uh, who were hoping to overthrow Rome. So they were kind of like cloak and dagger people. Uh, apparently they were doing all sorts of assassinations and like street killings and stuff, trying to get Rome out of the city. And what they were looking for in uh, the Messiah that had been prophesied, they were looking for like a new David, this king who was going to come in 
and overthrow the big government that was over them and allow uh, Israel to be an independent state again. Now, from Pilate's perspective, that's bad. His job is to keep the peace there and make sure that there's nothing to overthrow the Roman government. What matters to Pilate isn't what matters to the Pharisees. Pilate is trying to find out if he's like a terrorist trying to overthrow the Roman government. So he's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Translated, do you matter to me? Are you a threat to Roman occupation here? Now, as far as that school of thought goes, I'm not going to dig into that too much. I don't think that answers all the questions we have here. Like, why? Pilate doesn't really find him guilty of this, but continues to call him king of the Jews, like on the sign on the cross. So that explanation, as far as Pilate seemingly only being concerned with finding out if Pilate was, uh, if uh, Jesus is a zealot, I don't think that answers all the questions we'd have. Second school of thought, which is a popular one that I've seen online in like forums and stuff, is that it has to do with Pilate mocking Jesus. And I'm not really sure that I can agree with that either. First of all, it still doesn't cover every base, every instance of this. It doesn't add up to Pilate only mocking Jesus every time he says that. And second, the arguments that make this are usually involving extra-biblical history. They're looking at historical accounts, uh, I assume from Josephus and other sort of things about who Pilate was, what his character was like, and they're reading that into the story and saying, well, we have this sort of a character explanation for who Pilate was. Uh, maybe that was part of, you know, why he was uh, mocking Jesus with the term King of the Jews. I don't think that jives so well with John being focused on Pilate's obsession. I mean, John really highlights that Pilate is obsessed with this phrase, King of the Jews. It keeps coming up. And since we're using the literary design approach to the Bible here, which is what we're doing, uh, it, there's a, a difference between the literary design approach and what you're going to see most uh, typically New Testament theologians do. They have to use a lot of history in the New Testament because... Most of the New Testament is discourse between the apostles and churches, and a lot of those have historical assumptions that you know what's going on, you understand, uh, you know, all the inside jokes in that conversation is, you know, the equivalent. But not so much in narrative. In narrative, I'm running with the assumption here that John is giving me all the information I need, or that I can find the information elsewhere in the Bible, but really I want to see right here in John, what clues he's giving us. And if an explanation for why Pilate is doing this doesn't come right from John's gospel, I kind of want to eliminate that and see if John is giving us anything else, just as an experiment. And I think there are explanations that exist purely within the book of John, although the mocking thing does perhaps make sense. But I don't think that's what John is trying to communicate. So school of thought number three School of thought number three is that Pilate is somehow clearing his guilty conscience of sentencing Jesus to death by giving Jesus the title that he thinks he deserved. This one is really hit or miss. It feels closer to where I think I would land, but it still has some issues. Um, so you have to admit, though, that Pilate seems to be giving Jesus a little bit of credit here. And he doesn't seem to like the religious leaders either, so it would upset them for him to acknowledge Jesus as king of the Jews. Even if Pilate is somehow a Jesus sympathizer, though, he ultimately fails to do what he should have done, which is allowed Jesus to live and just rejected uh, what the Jews were telling him. But they were completely and utterly focused on getting Jesus killed, and they used political strategies to try and get Pilate to do it, which he ultimately succumbs to and does. I think 
where I'd land, and I haven't completely found a solid foundation here. Pilate does seem to be some sort of a Jesus sympathizer. He's at least curious in who Jesus is, and he doesn't seem to intend to have Jesus killed. Ultimately, the reason that Jesus is killed has nothing to do with Jesus at all. It's really a political issue. So Pilate, in order to keep the peace, and because he's ultimately convinced that it's what Caesar would want or would do, he kills Jesus, but it has nothing to do with him. But Pilate's little obsession with Jesus being king of the Jews, it seems like he might be trying to give him a little credit. So I'm not sure, but he certainly seems curious in who Jesus is. So anyways, that's together, that's the Pilate debate, and that's all of our debates too. So altogether, what we just saw is most certainly a biblical pattern. There's just, there's too much material here for John to not have been thinking they have to notice this. This You know, you could go and do this in yellow highlighter. Uh, It's in pink highlighter in my Bible, in case you're wondering, because pink is the color I have associated with a theme. Yellow is just to highlight like cool one-liners. I've got a system, all right? So with the names and with the debates, this is definitely, definitely a biblical pattern that surrounds the discovery of Jesus' identity and the controversy around such discoveries. But why? This seems to be a key point, if not the key point in John's Gospel. So what's the deal? What is the point? Why do we have this jumble of names and titles and debates and controversies and divisions? I can't really tell you what the deal is, because I'm not the judge, not from John's perspective at least. In John's perspective, you're the judge, and the question is what you make all of this. And so we're going to explore that a little bit right here. I would make a really fair argument that John has not only narrated courtroom sequences, but has actually laid out his gospel account like a court narrative. So my first point for that, to back up that statement, that the whole gospel is organized like a court narrative, this is something that I kind of picked up on, uh, not on my own, but when I was reading some of the work done by uh, Richard Bauckham. Uh, fascinating, really good scholar. I read portions of his uh, works in the book of John, and he was talking about how the gospel is laid out like a court narrative, and I probably should have gone and looked it up and see what he saw about it. But once I had that idea in my mind, it all started to make sense. So here are my arguments for why the whole gospel is like a court narrative. So point number one, John makes constant reference to common court terms, uh, usually witnesses, he uses the term witness a lot, as well as has that theme going on of seven witnesses. uh, And then he's got this theme of truth. So John is using courtroom terms within narrative. So Jesus isn't always in court, but the amount that we're talking about court makes it seem like this whole story is like a court. Point number two, Little to none of Jesus' moral teachings, the things that he was known for during his life, you know, going around teaching people how to behave, 
Very few, if any, are recorded in John. This is a stark, stark difference against the Synoptic Gospels. I mean, you can't even really apply the same study techniques that you do to the Synoptics, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that you do to John, because they're two completely different types of documents. Nearly all of the focus of John is on Jesus' talk about himself, like his identity, his purpose, and his talk about the current state of Israel, but he doesn't give moral teachings, hardly ever. John has like all but eliminated those so that he can hone in on Jesus' most controversial statements. And the goal of focusing on controversial statements is to form some kind of a verdict. So that's point number two. Point number three is that this theme of discovery and identification and debate just fits right into it. The stuff that we've talked about today fits right into the uh, courtroom theory super well. Jesus is like a lawyer. He's making a case, and he's going up against the religious leaders and other unbelievers, doubters in Israel. And together, they're arguing over evidence, and they're trying to win the jury. Now, the jury is made up of bystanders who grapple with the evidence that's being presented to them, and they ultimately have to make a decision. Think the woman at the well. She's got evidence. She makes a decision. The witnesses to feeding the 5,000. They seem to make a decision. They think he's a prophet. And then he says something they don't like. They make a new decision. He's just a guy. But then right after that, Peter, he is grappling with the information, with the evidence, and he thinks that Jesus is the Christ. So the bystanders in the story that we read right about in the narrative are all, it's as if they're grappling with the idea, trying to reach a verdict answering the question of who Jesus is. Who is he? Why is he here? What is he doing? And everyone seems to reach different conclusions. Some of them right, some of them close, some of them wrong. But as far as a global decision, one is never made. People make their statements. People kind of come to their own personal conclusions. But some of them change. Like, two different characters or sets of characters call Jesus a prophet and then change. The woman at the well at first thinks Jesus is a prophet and then changes to think that uh, he is the Christ. The witnesses to the five uh, feeding of the 5,000, they think he's a prophet and they go backwards after that. After he says something, he's like, oh, no, no, he's not that. He's actually just Jesus, son of Joseph. He's nobody. So even the characters are kind of constantly changing and grappling with new evidence to make their decisions. But a decision is never truly made, especially not on a global everybody scale. It happens to every individual. Everybody since the time of Jesus has had to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus, on their own. Not as, you know, it's not like you vote in a jury or something. You have to make that decision for yourself. And the people who are currently wrestling with that situation, that's the intended audience of the book of John. The anticipated audience of the book of John is people who are wrestling with the identity of Jesus. John has spent an entire book documenting the evidence and the back and forth arguments. And he's characterized the people who reach different conclusions. People get it right, people get it wrong. Very few people ever reach the exact same conclusions. It's always different and from different perspectives and different focuses. But John thinks that he's offered enough evidence to have you reach his conclusion as well. In chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, we opened this series with this verse. 
And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. He comes right out and says it, but not at the beginning of the book, at the end of the book. He says, the reason I've laid all this out is because I want you to reach a conclusion. And what I think the conclusion you're going to reach is, is Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And I want you to believe that so that you can have the life that he brings. But John can't make that decision for you. All he can do is present the evidence. And he hasn't just presented one-sided evidence. He's documented people who think that what Jesus is saying is crazy. And people today still think that what Jesus is saying is crazy. That his body is somehow the bread of life, eating my flesh. You know, that was controversial then. It doesn't make sense to people now. Still, when you wrestle with the evidence, what is the conclusion that you reach? Have you been persuaded by John? Have you been persuaded by his evidence? I mean, I've spent over half a year picking apart the book of John, just for the show. I've learned a lot of crazy things. I've discovered a few crazy things that I still don't see anyone else talking about uh, that I think are really cool, perhaps even really important. But reading John's gospel, I 100% agree with John's conclusion. I believed it before, but now I thoroughly and undoubtedly stand with that opinion reinforced by the beauty of John's literary design. And with that, I think I have settled the question of who this guy is. But the question that I still have to ask you, in your own words, who is this guy? Did you know? This guy Jesus not only had one book wrestling with the idea of his divine identity, but he actually had a bunch of really cool moral teachings as well. I touched on that briefly. Now it seems that Jesus' main teaching in the other books that talk about him is all about this idea called the kingdom. Jesus seemed to have this idea about a group or civilization living in ways very uh, peculiar seeming to the general earth population. Jesus dreamed of people who acted selflessly. They sought peace and they were defined by their love. Jesus lived the very life that he taught about and he urged others to make the difficult and selfless choice to follow in his footsteps. The core mission of Redeeming the Time as a ministry is to turn back what I think is a generation of weak Christians to look at the radical, countercultural, and controversial teachings of Jesus so that we can live out his kingdom right here and right now. And that's what we're going to talk about on the show next. You can listen and or download on our site at redeemingthetime.online, or you can listen on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Plus, if you're using any of those services, you can even subscribe and set it so that you get notifications to your device when a new episode comes out. You can also get updates when a new episode comes out by following us on Facebook and Twitter, with links to those in the description of this podcast or at the bottom of any page on our site. I cannot wait to start this new study, and I hope that you're there to listen to us talk about it. In the meantime, this has been Tyler Vigue, Redeeming the Time. <laughs>